Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We're working our way through the Gospel of John. We're midway through John 6. Left off at verse 41, and we're going to cover the rest of the chap- chapter this morning, a longer passage, Lord willing. So as you're finding John 6, let me mention just a couple things. One, I just want to reiterate uh, what Robert said about uh, the great privilege we have to hear from Dr. Conrad Mbewe next week. He visited us uh, back in 2019, I believe it was, in July and uh, is just one of the great preachers of the word in our world today. He is really, really respected, uh, really across the continents, around the world, as a fantastic communicator of the scriptures. And so if you're not familiar with his ministry, I really would love for you to come, invite a friend maybe, and then plan to join us on Sunday evening as well. Uh, for dinner and then a time with him. You may be wondering, how does a little church like, Columbia, like Cross Point get connected to Conrad and Baywood? Well, he's a friend of one of our elders, Robin, uh, Reuben Moyana. And when uh, Reuben asked him to come, he said yes. And so we're really thankful about that friendship and the opportunity that we have to tap into his gifts and his wisdom. Um, and as you're finding John 6, let me just mention, I rarely... Um, talk about giving. I almost never am in the order of service where I'm receiving the offering or praying for it. But it just struck me this week how grateful I am for this church and for your generosity. We have elder meetings regularly, and one of the things we think about, our primary task is to think about the spiritual condition of the church and care for the flock. But one of the things that we do occasionally in our meetings is think about where we are financially and As we approach the end of the year, we're thinking about giving money away generously to missions. About 20% of every dollar that comes into Crosspoint is given to ministry outside of this church. And I was just struck this Wednesday in particular by the generosity of this church in this time of pandemic, this time when, you know, the, the church has been hard to gather in some instances over the past year or so. And you, as a church, have just continued to be, not just in a maintaining way generous, but exceeding generosity. And it's just such a privilege. You know, I think every Christian, I know every Christian in the scriptures is commanded to give. And I think that we could build a good biblical case that the primary giving that a Christian should be involved in is to the ministry of their local church. But that doesn't mean that you necessarily need to give to this local church. I think you should if you're a member. But there's a a kind of intersection of trust that you guys are obviously showing towards us. And I'm just, along with the other elders, I'm profoundly humbled by that and really thankful for that. And so praise God for just your generosity. Just thank you, Crosspoint. Thank you that we can call up brothers around the world and say, hey man, we're going to send you some money for the work that you're doing in a difficult place where Christians right now can't gather and can't give. So praise God for that. Okay, uh, admiration for Crosspoint. 
commercial over. The passage this morning is longer than usual. It's about 30, 32 verses. And my plan is just to work through this text and make some points along the way to sort of zoom in at a kind of brisk pace. And then I want to zoom out and I want us to consider really one question. What does it mean to feed on Christ. I think that's the point of John 6. I think that's what Jesus is trying to get across. In fact, I think that if you understand what Jesus is saying in John 6, you really are well on your way to understanding part of the essence of the Christian life. That Jesus is, is not just an accessory. He's not just somebody to be confessed. He's not just a set of doctrinal beliefs to be believed, but he's, he is a, he is the only thing that will sustain us. Not, not only his sacrifice for our salvation, but his, his daily bread, symbolically speaking, who he is, who the Lord is, what it means to be a Christian, I think is, is in many ways summarized by what Jesus says here in John chapter 6. And so I want us to come in contact with the point of Jesus' discourse here in John 6, which is essentially, feed on me, abide in me, be sustained by me. And I think that's the point of this text. So let's, let's read in verse 41. We'll read and comment along the way and then end with a question or two. And we have the great privilege to see a baptism today, of, and I'm really excited about the baptism today. I'm excited about every baptism, but this baptism in particular, to me, is a kind of evidence of grace of the wonderful things going on at Cross Point. There's a young man, a soldier, who is being baptized by an older man, not an old man, but an older man. And this older man is pouring his, he's, he's a member of the church, and he's just pouring his life into this younger man, and it's bearing beautiful fruit in the life of the church and in the life of these brothers. So I'm really thankful for that. Verse 41. Remember the context of where we are in John 6. If you're here for the first time, we've been working through this gospel just verse by verse. And John 6 started with Jesus feeding miraculously thousands and thousands of people, multitudes, just from a couple loaves of bread and a few fish, just multiplied them. It was the most public miracle of Jesus' ministry, and he feeds these multitudes out of nothing, Then he follows that up by walking on the water to his disciples in the middle of the night and joining them in the boat. And now he is in the middle of this discourse where he is telling the people, basically in this sermon or speech or teaching, he is interpreting for them what this miracle of the multiplication of the the loaves and the fishes actually means. It doesn't just mean that Jesus can feed you for a day physically, although clearly he can. There's a, a symbol, there's a, there's, a, there's a point to this, and Jesus is saying that, that this physical miracle is pointing to a spiritual reality, that I am the bread of life. I'm the one that sustains you. That's his point. And he's in the middle of this. So verse 41, it says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So just note the humility of of Jesus, that he is apparently living his life in front of these people in such an unremarkable, 
sort of unself-centered way that they're saying this is just a regular guy. And we know from the rest of the New Testament and, of course, texts in John that Jesus is, is not just a regular man. He is, the, he is God himself in the flesh. But yet there's this kind of humility in Jesus where these people say he's just, we just, he's just a regular guy. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44, we read this last week as we looked at the, the, the picture of Jesus in salvation and what he's doing. We see it reiterated here, this, this, this dependence we have on God for salvation. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's this truth in the Bible that we must deal with. That when God saves a person, He makes Jesus so beautiful. He draws the person. He's not responding to anything in the person, but that dead heart is awakened by God's grace. And Jesus is so beautiful that He becomes irresistible to this heart that is made alive. And He draws that person to Christ. Verse 45, it is written, in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So Jesus is obviously speaking about his ministry of showing, all the way back to John chapter 1, where John is telling us that the ministry of Jesus is to make the Father known. Verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Verse 48 is really the summary of the whole chapter. I am the bread of life. And of course we know that Jesus is speaking here, spiritually speaking. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now see here, the point of this passage is that Jesus is saying that we need him. We need him. And friends, let's admit before we continue reading that we and this may not apply to everybody equally. I understand that because in this room, we have varying levels of, of backgrounds and financial and socioeconomic levels. But I don't think I'm going out on a limb by saying that we live in the most least needy culture in the history of civilization. And so as we look at this, it's we have to do some work before we can get to this place before we really feel the weight of what Jesus is saying. That, I, that you cannot live without me. That's what he's saying here in this passage. Let's look at verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So we know already from the question in verse 52 that they don't get it. They're, they're thinking 
that he's speaking physically. They're saying, what are, you, what are you talking about? They were in this physical realm, much like the woman at the well back in John chapter 4. She's thinking of this, you know, this, this endless supply of physical water, and Jesus is saying, no, I'm not talking about physical water or an endless sort of well that you know, physically you can draw water from. I'm talking about this well of living water. And they're, they're like that woman at the well in John 4. They're not seeing what Jesus is saying. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. I think that is at the very heart of what Jesus is saying in John 6. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So what is Jesus referring to there in the last few verses, 57, 58? He's talking about in the Old Testament when God worked through Moses miraculously in the desert and he caused literally bread and birds to fall from heaven, manna and quail to fall from heaven. And Jesus is saying that that physical miracle is a kind of foreshadowance of Christ, just like the physical miracle that we just read about in John chapter 6, about how he multiplied the, the loaves and the fishes. It's a physical miracle, but his point is, is that physical miracle of the manna falling from heaven in the Old Testament, and the bread that I just miraculously fed you with in the first part of this chapter, it, it will sustain you physically, but eventually you will physically die. It's meant to point you to this spiritual reality that Jesus is saying to the crowd, which is, I'm the bread, symbolically speaking, that will feed you and you must abide in me forever and live. And of course, the crowd is mistakenly taking him literally here. That's what they're doing at the beginning of verse 52. They're saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? In fact, this verse is part of, along with the teaching of Jesus on the, the Lord's Supper at the end of the Gospels, and then Paul's teaching in the Lord's Supper about how we're to receive communion together in 1 Corinthians 11, was one of the reasons why in the first century Christians were accused of being cannibals. If you, if you know a little bit about church history, it's because of verses like this, because of a misunderstanding of this. But clearly that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, even when we receive communion together, that, his, that the bread and the cup that we take somehow mysteriously transforms into his actual body and blood, as our Catholic friends very wrongly believe. That's not what this is saying. He's talking symbolically. And he's saying that he, we must, metaphorically, we must spiritually take him in 
And I think, in the history of the church, I think many of the uh, church fathers in the early centuries had this right. They viewed what Jesus is saying here as a kind of symbol. His flesh and blood is, is, is a picture of his work on the cross, that his, his flesh was broken for us and his blood was spilled for us. And the eating, the receiving, is a picture of us trusting. It's a picture of our believing and receiving and taking in in a spiritual way, feasting on eating, believing in what Jesus has done in his body, broken on the cross and his blood spilled on the cross for us. That's what Jesus is talking about. Friends, that's the heart of this passage. And he's saying that to live, not just in the future, but now, Abiding in me now is a matter of being sustained by who I am and by what I have done. Verse 60. Now notice how the crowd, at least many of them, react to this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And I I spent some time just thinking about verse 60. I don't know if the point of verse 60 is saying that they're still sort of misunderstanding what he's saying and they're thinking still a physical sense. They're saying, gosh, that's hard. That's almost kind of grotesque. What are you talking about? But I think there's also a kind of spiritual application to it. It's hard for our natural selves in our sinful, self-righteous state to accept the fact that we must feast on Christ rather than our own righteousness in ourselves. That's a hard message because we we want the glory. We, we want some credit. We want to be made, to be seen as self-righteous or stronger than or whatever. And when we come face-to-face with this message that Jesus is preaching in John chapter 6, that we are completely dependent on him, it's a hard message for the flesh to feel. I think that's part of what's going on in verse 60. But Jesus, verse 61, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What does verse 62 mean? Well, on the surface, maybe Jesus is talking about his ascension into heaven eventually at the end after the crucifixion and the resurrection, and that's very possible. But it, 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 it seems unlikely that that would be the case because why would Jesus ascending back to heaven after his resurrection be offensive to the disciples at this point? More likely, I think, is that Jesus is speaking about when he says ascending, he's talking about the cross because in the Gospel of John, Jesus will often speak of him being lifted up or ascended on the cross. And so I think what Jesus is saying is he's saying, if you think this is offensive, how much more will you be offended when you see me being crucified and ascending or being lifted up on the cross, naked, beaten, torn? How offensive will that be? And we know from places like 1 Corinthians 1, that the cross, the crucified Lord on the cross is an offense to this world. The world hates the message of the cross. And by the way, as a kind of side, 
any version of Christianity that tries to make the message of the gospel somehow compatible with the brokenness of this world or the unregenerate mind as somehow you can just add Jesus on as a kind of self-improvement. Friends, it is not the gospel. Regardless of whether you are four or five or six or seven years old, when you come to a realization of your, of your trust, whatever age you are or whether you're 80, on some level, the message of the cross must first offend us before it can save us. We are by nature glory thieves. And the message of God laying down His Son, God in the flesh, for us, and our sin, your sin, my sin, being so heinous that it requires the death of God the Son in the flesh, offends us. And the message that we are completely dependent on His work, not our righteousness, is offensive to human flesh. And I think that's what's going on in verse 61. Verse 63, this is an underliner. This is one of those, if you highlight, you know, I used to highlight a lot, but I just, I noticed when I was younger that Bible pages are so thin that when you highlight, it bleeds through a lot of times, you know what I'm talking about? And then you end up highlighting a verse and then you flip the page and it confuses you because you highlighted a verse that you didn't necessarily, and then if you're like an over, if you're an, if you're a, um, uh, you're a hyper highlighter like I was, you end up having everything highlighted and then you're just better off just not highlight because then the things that stand out are the things that aren't highlighted. But whatever you do to remember verses, I think 63, 63 is one of those ones that maybe you ought to do. I've personally have moved to colored pencils. And I have a colored system too. If you want to know my system, we can talk about it later. Every color means something until I have more meanings and not enough colors. Listen to what Jesus says here in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. All right, we need to stop here and think about what Jesus is saying. When he says the flesh is no help at all, I think he is transitioning from talking about his flesh, what he's primarily been talking about in the first part of this passage, to now talking about our flesh, our human efforts. You've got to follow the context. He's not saying that his flesh is no help at all. In fact, his broken flesh is the very essence of the help that we need. And so he's saying here, I think in verse 63, exactly what he said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He's saying that... You are completely dependent on the move of the Spirit to even give you an understanding of what I'm saying here. It is the Spirit who gives life. Capital S, Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. Our hearts are dead. The wind of the Spirit blows where it wills. It comes, it gives life. In Titus chapter 3, I believe it is, it says that it is the spirit of regeneration that comes and makes our dead hearts alive. And what is of no help at all, what cannot make any change, what cannot affect anything until the Spirit gives life? The flesh. 
No matter how smart we are, no matter how righteous we are in our own sort of horizontal level of good deeds, no matter what type of family we came from, we all need the Spirit to give life. That's what Jesus, I think, is saying here in verse 63. And as we say that, I want to also cue up everything that I said about human responsibility last week in that beautiful paragraph. Where even though we are completely dependent on the Spirit to give life, Jesus still preaches this word to people that do not believe, and he laments over people who make their own personal decision to not believe. So you put those two truths together. It is the Spirit who gives life, and you are responsible to believe. And you say, Brad, how do those two things together? Oh, come on. How do a lot of things go together? I don't know. I get on a plane a couple times a year, and I fly home to the country of California, and I don't have the faintest idea how that big piece of metal gets up in the air. We talk into a plastic box, and it sends signals up to a satellite, and that satellite sends signals back down to somebody else on the other side of the world, and we can hear each other. How does that happen? <laughs> Come on! Oh, but I mean, the creator of the universe whose thoughts are high above ours, our thoughts, he doesn't mesh with human philosophy, so I'm not gonna, I'm gonna doubt this truth. Come, come on, the hubris sometimes, the hubris of us humans, huh? Amen? All right, enough of that. <laughs> I, I, listen to me. I know cranky preachers can some sort, sort of somehow project a kind of anti-intellectualism. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear me. Don't hear me say that. I get going and I, I, I slip into, you know, down by 14 at halftime football coach mode. That's not what I mean to do right now. <laughs> I, I'm just saying. God has given us minds. We should think deeply. I love thinking deeply about difficult truths. But let's approach them with some humility. And as our brother J.C. Ryle said last week, or we read it last week, he actually said it about 150 years ago, there's a way of trying to systematize God that actually stifles the truth. And so let's just let things, man, the Spirit gives life. You must believe. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back. Now think about this. Okay, now, we know that in the rest of the Gospels in John, we're, 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 we're the, 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 the lens kind of zooms in on 12 disciples. At this point, there's probably at least 70 that we can piece together from other Gospel accounts that correspond to this particular time, maybe more. And so, obviously, there's this, also this large crowd that's kind of hanging around. But here, I think the focus of verse 66 is a smaller shot group, a smaller circle of disciples who claim themselves. They're not just people in the crowd. They're people that are, have been with him and would be considered, considered followers of him. So probably about 70 at a minimum at this point. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So it wasn't just a, a fickle crowd that said, ah, this is kind of hard. I don't know if I really want to sign up for this. It was people that had been with him for a while and seen 
some miracles. And they turn away from this offensive teaching of Jesus. So Jesus said to the twelve, who stayed with him, obviously, do you want to go away as well? In verse 68, Simon Peter answered them, Lord, answer, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter gets it right. And I don't know what the sentiment is exactly of his words in verse 68. To whom shall we go? I don't know if that means, gosh, we just don't have any other options. Or if it means, if he's really fully realizing, who do, where else could we go? I mean, you, you are all we need. What, what, which is it? Is, it? is it just the, it seems to be the best of options? Or is it this realization that Jesus really is our only hope? I think probably Peter is a kind of strange, in-progress combination of both of those perspectives, just like we are on some level. You know, just kind of there, like, gosh, I don't, I don't know. Remember John the Baptist? Remember John the Baptist back at the beginning of, of John? We looked at John the Baptist, this great preacher of the word. And then later on, after he's, he's so boldly proclaiming that Jesus is the one who takes away the sin of the world, but yet later on in his life, he's in prison for preaching righteousness to Herod, and his head is about to be chopped off, and he sends word to Jesus to ask him, are you really the one, or should we expect another? And you see this, this tension even in John the Baptist. He's the one who takes away the sin of the world. Are you really the one? And here we see it maybe in Peter too. Lord, where else should we go? I, don't, I mean, I guess this seems, I mean, uh, or I know that you're the one. The truth is probably somewhere in between like all of us. Jesus answered them, verse 70. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And earlier, back up in verse 64, remember it says, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Well, we won't get into that now. We'll cover that later. But the point is, is that Judas's betrayal did not surprise Jesus. I think Jesus, Judas is a picture. Judas is a picture of what we see in Mark chapter 4, where there are some people that seem to be followers of Jesus, some soils that seem to sprout up for a little while, but tribulation or trials or temptations come. In the case of Judas, the temptation of cheap money came, and they show themselves not to have lost their salvation, but to have never truly had it. I think that's what Judas is a picture of. And to some degree in the church, we will always have wheat and tares, and part of our role as a church is to fight against this and to take the Christian life so seriously and to care for one another in a way that we don't give one another false assurance. So as we conclude here in just a moment and see this brother baptized, what does it mean? Here's just a question I want to ask us. Nothing on the screen. Just a question. 
Friends, what does it mean for us to feed on Christ? If you understand this discourse, this sermon, this teaching from Jesus, and if you spend your life, and if I spend my life wrestling with and fighting to apply what it looks like for us, we are well on our way to understanding the Christian life. What does it mean to feed on Christ? Well, clearly, uh, uh, in in a primary level, it means that we trust Him alone for the forgiveness of sins. Remember Jesus' first audience here in this discourse in John 6 is, is, is first century Jews who were trying to obey the law, who were still in this old covenant, who were probably thinking that their salvation, their heritage, their ethnicity was making them right with God. And probably part of the offense is that Jesus is not talking about this at all. In fact, he is clearly speaking about his bread, his life, as being superior to the old covenant that Moses gave. And this was threatening them. And they were troubled by this. It was offensive to them that your, that your heritage, your ethnicity, your law-abiding won't save you. Friends, what does this mean for us? We, we may not be ethnic Jews, but, but we do have a kind of similar sometimes hang-up where we think, well, we, we're, we're, we're Christian folks who grew up in the Bible Belt, and you know, our parents brought us to church, and all those things can be wonderful gifts. But friends, that will not save you. What Jesus is saying here is that you, you must trust in me. You must abide in me. You must feast in me for yourself. Nothing will save you. No gift, no intellect, no heritage, no upbringing. Although those things may be used by the Lord as means of grace, none of those things will save you except Christ alone and you receiving, you taking him in, you recognizing your hunger, your complete dependence before God. And that only Christ can do that. And then I think secondly, and we could spend all day, all week, the rest of our lives contemplating this is that not only is it trusting in him primarily for the forgiveness of sins, for salvation, that moment of being justified and made right before a holy God, but living a life of continued, realized, daily dependence on him. And I end with this, that that's what Jesus is saying to, to the people. He's what he's saying to us as well. Not only trust Him for salvation, but trust Him for daily dependence. And we live in a world that is pushing us in the opposite direction of humility and daily and continual and growing dependence upon the Lord. That's what this world will push you towards. A world that wants just a little bit of Jesus as an accessory rather than an all-consuming meal an all-conquering, powerful king that we must be obedient to. We have all these forces in this universe and in this world that are pointing us to be dependent on ourselves, to find our value from everything out here rather than Christ. And Jesus is calling us to be dependent on him. Friends, I need this message. I think you need this message. One of the things that I struggle with, I thought about applications 
And I thought about how I could, you know, this would be a great time to talk about all the young people and their addiction to social media. You know, that gets us, yeah, yeah. And all the, you know, people over 40 are like, yeah, those young people. And then I thought, well, I can, I can, then I can train the guns on the people over 40 and talk about how they're, you know, they're, they're just, they're, they're sort of addicted to, you know, their political persuasions and how they're right and all those people that are on the other side of the aisle and we can just kind of find our justification. You know, and then all the young people are like, yeah, you old folks, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we just, and th- these are ways that we kind of make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And, and what it does is it slowly weans us from humility. It slowly causes us to drift from this daily realization of how needy we are and how we need Jesus. And I just thought, you know, they don't, they don't need me. You don't need me to bash millennials, and you don't need me to criticize boomers. You, you, friends, this, this message is for me. I, I need to remember Jesus. I need to feed on him. I need to see myself primarily through the lens of who Christ is to me. I need to be satisfied with Jesus. And I often fail at that. I do. I, 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 I can rationalize caring about what people are thinking and doing as a kind of pastoral posture when in reality it is the addiction to the applause of man. And it weans me off of what I truly need, which is Christ. What does it look like for you to feed on Christ? What does it look like? What junk food is inhibiting you from feeding on Christ? Friends, Conrad and Bayway is coming next week. And then eventually we'll get into John 7. And we'll start handling another portion of the passage of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let's not blow by John 6. If you understand if you are humbled by, if you are wounded, if you are left completely needy by what Jesus is saying in John 6, you are well on your way to understanding the Christian life. And friends, stay there. Stay there. The Christian life is not one of upward mobility, but downward mobility into Christ, which is actually growing up. And that's what John 6 is calling us to. Let me pray. Lord, take this passage, take this glorious chapter, and use it to make us hungrier for Christ. And use it also to satisfy us in Christ. For my friends that are in this room that do not know Jesus, open their eyes, I pray, so that they would see that their only hope is receiving, trusting, feasting on, metaphorically, Jesus' broken body and spilled blood on the cross. And for my brothers and sisters who are already trusting in Christ, 
May we never move beyond our hunger. And may you alone satisfy our hunger in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.